0: The landscape of independent distribution is changing fast in 2019. With more independents moving to truly independent distribution models, indie's true market share is becoming clearer. Welcome to The Future of What. I'm your host, Portia Saban, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, MerchTable partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit MerchTable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk about what's going on in independent distribution in the U.S. and globally. It's all coming up on The Future of What... Support for The Future of What comes from SoundExchange. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Chris Wells of Secretly Group. Chris, welcome to The Future of What.
1: Thanks, Portia. Great to be here.
0: Yeah. So, today, on this episode, I got excited last year. Let me just back up for a second. Someone was asking me about my predictions for 2019. Hmm. And I was like, I think there's going to be a huge shakeup in indie distribution. And they were like, what do you mean? <laughs> I was like, ooh, I was like, I think the players are all going to change. And this is really exciting because that's exactly basically what you guys have done. You have changed your distribution in a pretty radical way. Yeah. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. Totally. So tell us, you went from being distributed by ADA, which is large independent distributor, to being distributed by Ampt. So can you tell us about Ampt and what that means?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Ampt for us covers physical distribution in the U.S. and they largely cover the chains and Amazon. They also will act as a one-stop for retailers as well. But the real kind of bread and butter of our relationship with Ampt is for them to kind of manage the Amazon relationship and fulfillment to Amazon and the chains.
0: Yeah. So for people who are listening who don't like fully understand why it would be so important for, you know, a a distribution company like you guys, you distribute, I don't know how many labels, but several.
1: Yeah. Roughly 60. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 60. That's, I mean, yeah, that's a lot of labels, Mm -hmm. including your own secretly group labels. You know, Amazon is basically the number one retailer in the US. So what is the true advantage of having a deal with somebody who, has the type of relationship with Amazon that AmpT has.
1: Yeah, it's incredibly important. So obviously Amazon is a is a massive account for many, many labels, naturally. And so partnering with someone like AmpT, they have a really unique relationship with Amazon. They're also a fulfillment partner for Amazon. So for our labels, the extra layer of advantage is that, for one, their product is in stock at Amazon through their own fulfillment warehouses, but also with the unique relationship that AmpT has with Amazon – if they're in stock at Ampt, they're always going to be in stock at Amazon. And so it's just a really unique relationship that Ampt can say they have over other competitors and that Amazon can plug into their warehouse and get stock as needed. So it's kind of this nice little extra layer of protection for our label group to have product in stock. That's the biggest thing. On release date, you want to make sure that there's no concerns about product being available.
0: Exactly. And, you know, for people who don't understand, you know, let's say I have a new release going into stores and Amazon has only brought in, let's say, ten copies of it or something like that. Right. So on my first day, you know, within 20 minutes there could be a sold out sign on Amazon. Yes. And so how many sales might I lose based on that sold out, even though, you know, they may reorder the next day or they may be able to get stock quickly. That's not the point. The point is consumers might go to Amazon, see the sold out sign and decide either not to buy it at all or to, you know, go get it somewhere else.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So that's a huge advantage to not ever have to worry about having a sold out sign. So, yeah,
1: absolutely. yeah. <laughs> that's a big one, yeah, absolutely. And we spent a lot of time with our labels this year over something kind of explaining that process and, you know, really kind of getting into why we were making that switch. and it was obviously met with a lot of praise and you know, a lot of relief because that was obviously a big concern every year that we discuss, you know the big key headline issues with our labels that's that's always going to be one of them
0: absolutely. Now, Secretly Distro is a little bit different than a record label in that you guys, I mean, there's Secretly Canadian the label, but at some point you guys decide to do a distribution company. And that means that not only are you responsible for figuring out how to sell your product, put them into the marketplace, but you're actually also doing that for other labels, CDs, LPs, cassettes, and MP3s. Our whatever, you know, these products are that we are putting out nowadays. That's why we call this show the future of what? Like, what are we doing? I don't know. So I would say it's actually gotten more complicated in the last 10 years than less complicated, partially because of the rise of digital and partially because the marketplace has just changed so much. So can you talk a little bit about distro in general and just like your experience doing this for the last several years?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, early days... You kind of did what was needed. You shipped records out to stores. You called stores. You fostered relationships with stores. And largely, that was a very positive process. You know, the the people working at record stores were thrilled to be hearing from you and get your music. Obviously, as things morphed over the mid-2000s, when Apple rose to dominance in the MP3 world, it was a slog at first to get attention from people at Apple who... You know, from the business level and from just the day to day, like promotional level, it was tough to get attention, A, because of the sheer amount of people going into that channel, but also, you know, not everybody knew who you were. So, you know, you had to kind of get back into the swing of like teaching people like, you know, hey, we're a serious indie label group. You need to be paying attention to what we're doing. So there was a lot of that. We cut our teeth there, you know, fairly early in the game, but that was a challenge up front. You know, it's similar today with streaming. Like we have amazing relationships with streaming companies, obviously, but the shelf space, so to speak, is is very limited. So we're very persistent about in, in providing high quality service. And that's, you know, I think what sets us apart in a lot of ways from other distributors is that, yeah, our label group is growing, but I think, you know, Per release, we're doing greater work per release than we feel others are doing. And so, you know, I think that's always been our thing is being very deliberate and very selective about, you know, who we work with.
0: You know, it used to be, like, certainly when I took over Kill Rockstars in 2006, we had one distributor. And at the time, it was Touch & Go. Touch & Go was doing our distribution, and they had a deal with ADA. And that was all of our stuff. And it was sort of very simple. It was like we just worked with Touch & Go, and they sent us a check and, you know, it's so long ago now, that, what is that, 12, 13 years ago, mm-hmm. they literally sent us two checks a year. So, you know, we got one in June and one in mm-hmm. January or whatever, and that was it. That was, you know, all of our money for the year. Wow. And that's how that whole thing happened. nowadays, you have to have a distributor for physical, and you guys have done that in the U.S. with AMPT. But you also have to have digital distribution in the U.S., and then you have to have physical and digital distribution in the rest of the world. So what have you guys cobbled together? I mean, I say cobbled together. It's a perfectly legit business plan, but it is funny because if we're going from like we have one distributor to we have this like network and patchwork, it sort of feels like it's something new.
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, to kind of lay it out, like Secretly has always had like a pretty vast direct account base domestically, working with hundreds of mom and pop retailers, brick and mortar retailers. And then we've always had that chain level Amazon level partner in ADA or AMPT. And then internationally, even early on, we would work with one stops overseas or bigger distributors like Pias or Cargo in different territories like UK and Germany. So we were always trying to really kind of forge relationships even in those early days with kind of the premier or one or two of the premier distributors in each territory. And so, you know, we'd then provide that service naturally to our entire label group. And, you know, some labels would be one with one distributor or another based on best fit or, you know, what they were looking to achieve in the market. So yeah, it was a pretty steep challenge of getting those relationships in place in the first place and making sure they were really strong. But then also, you know, navigating the changes of each marketplace as things would develop, you know, different markets favor different formats. And, you know, streaming or downloading was just really not much of a thing in certain markets. And so we'd have to navigate the marketplace and and be experts for our label group in all of those areas. And so, you know, for a young budding distributor, that was a pretty tall order. And so, yeah, it was absolutely a challenge across the years. And it still is now because as the marketplace changes, you know, distributors, you know, are shuttering and the majors are shutting down distribution in different parts of the world. And and so, yeah, we're, we're left in a place where we really need to stay on top of that stuff.
0: So for digital in the U.S., do you go direct with the various DSPs or do you go through Merlin or how do you work it?
1: It's a mix of both. I mean, from the, the early days, we carved out direct deals with the likes of like Apple and eMusic music and, and Amazon and things of that nature. And then as Merlin kind of rose up and, and started to, to work with more and more indies, it was, very advantageous for us to become a member of Merlin. They've been obviously just the absolute like torchbearer when it comes to making sure that we're properly represented in the digital marketplace and so we do partner up with Merlin for those basically those top streaming accounts like like um Spotify and YouTube.
0: Yeah, and that's something that, you know, some of my listening audience will be familiar with Merlin, but basically they are the body that does the negotiations for the independent labels who are members of theirs and so they do deals with Pandora and Spotify and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. on behalf of their indie members. And that's been a, a true boon, I think, to the indie label world for the last 10 years or so.
1: It's been immense. Working with Charles and Charlie and everybody on that team has been an incredibly educational experience, but also you just, you know that they know what your group stands for and what you need to get done. They're very inclusive and involving you in, in negotiations and, and, you know, letting you kind of get your word in and into what you value in the marketplace. And they go and they they fight for that.
0: Right. So one thing that I want to talk about, because I'm always interested in the machinations of the music business, which, you know, you can talk about or not, as you so desire, (laughs) I'm always fascinated. You know, to me, this was a big deal when you guys announced that you were moving to Amped and away from ADA. And the reason is because ADA, although they're technically an independent, their parent company is Warner Music, and therefore count the labels that are distributed by them as market share. And that's something that I think people don't know about really a lot. And to me, that makes a huge difference because with you guys moving to Amped, we now have a huge market share that's moved back into the independent world, yeah. which is you know where it belongs since you guys are independent.
1: Absolutely. That's a huge thing for us. We have a 100% independent path to market now, which our entire label group is incredibly proud of. That's always been a factor, and we're proud to be able to say that now. Look, ADA was a great partner for us for many years, and the people that work there are wonderful. Totally. But being a part of AMP now allows us to kind of really take control of what we're trying to do. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's a new relationship, but we're very excited about it.
0: Yeah, I'm fascinated because I would love to see the true representation numbers because I believe the indie market share is way higher than we have it reported yeah. because of the ways the distro sort of alters the landscape. And I'm not, you know, I, listen, I sit on the RIAA board, right? Like I am yeah. not a major versus indie person. Right. I think if there's anything in the music business right now, it's tech versus music. Like, right. I think that's where our real issue is. I don't think we have to make enemies with each other. Right. But, it, you know, it just in terms of looking at the truth of what the marketplace looks like, you know, I think the Indies are an extremely strong sector. So we should be able to see that. Yeah. So I'm very excited about that, about you guys moving into this arena. And I personally feel like with secretly leading the way, we're probably going to see some more big shifts, some more big, big companies moving into the truly fully independent distro.
1: I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is to me, like you said early on, this is just the start. I think it's just going to continue, to continue to take place over the next couple of years.
0: Cool. Well, Chris Wells, thank you so much for being with us today on The Future of What?
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much, Portia.
2: What's like...
0: That was November Man by Filthy Friends. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Jim Mahoney of Merlin. Jim, welcome to The Future of What? Hi, Portia. Hi. So we're talking indie distribution and the changes in indie distribution in 2019. And one of the things I'm excited about is, you know, with Secretly's move away from ADA and to Amped for physical distribution, I'm excited because that is a huge amount of revenue that's truly becoming fully part of the independent market share for the first time in a long time. And I feel like that's sort of the trend that we're seeing right now is there's more money in the indie sector and there's more people sort of figuring out how to capitalize on that in a fully independent way. And I know that Merlin is one of the options for a lot of people to help manage their digital situation. So I wanted to talk to you because I thought you could elucidate how Merlin helps labels with, you know, managing their digital rights and monies.
3: I might be able to help, but if you make me say elucidate, then I'm
0: <laughs> short of expectations. You did it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right, right um, Over that hump, never again. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Your point about the secretly guys moving from ADA to AMP, that's a, a physical distribution move, right? So it was that ADA was helping secretly with some portion of their their physical distribution. But for a long time now, secretly, as uh, many other independent labels and distributors and, and artist services companies have done, have wanted to work directly in the digital marketplace. And that's where Merlin comes in. So we're not a digital distributor but instead, a licensing agent that works on behalf of independent rights owners. They come in labels or independent digital distributors or artist services companies. We even have some management companies that control rights. Independent companies who decided on their own that so they want to control their own digital business with all or some part of their digital partners. Merlin is in place to collectively negotiate the commercial deal terms under which the businesses between those independent companies and the DSPs are pinned. And the reason for us is that you can imagine <laughs> all the number of independent companies across the globe, it wouldn't be feasible for the digital companies, the Spotify's or Apple's or YouTube's or Pandora's or SoundCloud of the world, to construct a business affairs team large enough to negotiate individual terms with every independent who sought it. And so along about 10 uh, 11 years ago, Merlin was created to be that central negotiator on behalf of our member sector of the independent community, those uh, independents who want to work directly with the DSPs.
0: Yeah, exactly. So now what do you guys, I mean, you said you're not a digital distributor, and I think we should unpack this for people because this is kind of one of those things that is hard to understand if you don't fully You know, get it, because back in the day when there was only iTunes, you know, the early, (laughs) the Stone Age, you know, we had a direct deal with iTunes. And, you know, that meant that we got all the data from iTunes and we just managed our own digital and we figured out the reports and, and how to pay royalties based on the reports we got directly from Apple. And, you know, when digital became a thing for distributors to offer in addition to physical distribution... There was a period of time there where it seemed like the service that they were offering, like the fact that they were going to take a percentage from a label for doing your digital, for handling your digital maybe wasn't really that worth it because if look just looking at iTunes, you're like, well, I can handle the iTunes income. You know, that's not a problem. But interestingly enough, as technology has changed and have as many, many more services have come into the marketplace, it's starting to be a real service that digital distributors provide because the data that comes in is is out of control. Like it's it's nuts. <laughs> that's <laughs> it's, one way of putting it for sure. And I mean some, you know, some labels are big enough that they can hire, you know, a department of people to handle all that incoming data, but some are not like mine. I mean, that seems crazy. So I feel like it's well worth my you know, percentage that I paid a red eye to handle my digital distribution. But what Merlin can do is people who handle their own digital can use Merlin in a way as well, right? Sure. Not as a distributor, but in a, as, in a particular way.
3: Yeah, so some of the things that you touched on is that you, know, you you'll look at the data, and I think that's an important part, right? So like, everybody wants to talk about data in 2019, but you know, if, if everybody saw what data looks like in its raw form, you, you'd run away from it. If you don't know what to do with your data, or can't manipulate it into a place where it's easily digested and usable, you're talking about a fire hose of information. And if you're you know an independent isn't resource with a big large team and an in-house you know, data analytics department, you are either operating by gut in a marketplace when others are using data to be advantaged, and that's going to disadvantage you, or you're going to pay. There's some services out there you could try and, you know, use, but independence historically, and the very nature of being independent should be to be able to be free to make your own decisions, right? And so Merlin we're not trying to talk to people who are with, you know, Sony or Universal or Warner and try to talk them out of their distribution deals. We're here for independents who've made the choice that they want to take on their own digital business. They don't want to work with an intermediary in terms of managing their business, but they would be disadvantaged in deal terms if they try to negotiate their own deals on their own. If you're happy to click here on the licenses that are being put forward to you by almost any entity in the world, you're surely not going to do as well as you would do if you could engage and negotiate, right? And so Merlin handles that one aspect. We negotiate these deals with the largest digital partners in the music space and make sure that independents who are making the choice to go on their own, do their own thing, can do so without sacrificing commercial deal terms to do so. Most famously in 2018, that would be, you know, if there's equity available in Spotify, Merlin achieved equity and then was able to split that out when that equity was realized amongst its members. But to the point of Merlin not being a digital distributor ourselves, our members have to know what a professional supply chain is. That is to deliver their own content in the bespoke manner that each DSP requires. You've mentioned iTunes before Apple, and you know, they've always been led by their producer or Apple Connect account and, and made it easy for independents to upload content. But all DSPs aren't doing that. And so it takes, you know, if you're if you're not learning about DDEX and XML feeds and things like that, you probably want to hire out for a digital delivery provider merlin doesn't provide marketing or promotion services so we expect that our members already have the relationships in place the know-how to strategize to get your music front and center on the digital services our members receive direct raw reporting whereas your distributor and others would provide you with a nice clean accounting statement each month showing all of your activity across every dsp that doesn't happen at merlin the data analysis part We're not here to interfere with the marketplace at all, frankly. But we're not here to say that distributors don't play an important role for independent labels. What we're here for is for distributors to want to make sure that their deals are on par with the largest companies in the music space or for independents who want to work directly. They should be able to make that choice without sacrificing commercial terms.
0: Yeah. Is Merlin available to just independent artists alone or only labels?
3: Our doors are open to any independent who would like to join, and we don't really designate it. it's like, oh, well, it's a label, it's a distributor, or an artist. The fact is, very few artists do join directly because artists who want to do the DIY thing in the marketplace, generally speaking, and again, you wouldn't want to paint with a broad brush when you're talking about the independent sector, but generally speaking, the independent artist who wants to go direct to market. Without signing to a label, for instance, probably wants to control his creative works. He wants to record on his own cycle. He doesn't need the advance dollars of the label, perhaps. He wants to control, maybe he can even control his marketing. But most, I haven't yet spoken to very many independent artists who <laughs> want to talk about supply chain and DDX feeds yeah. <laughs> and, and raw reporting. Right, and right. The like. But the one who wants to can absolutely, if they think that they, it would be best for their business to do so and do it through Merlin could talk to us. I like to talk about a little bit of a a kind of a holistic circle that's happening in the marketplace from my vantage point is that, you know, labels are concerned because artists are doing their own thing and sometimes not electing to sign with labels. But of course, distributors are concerned because labels are sort of leaving distributors in some cases and trying to do it on their own and bringing the circle to a close. The artists who are doing it on their own are often signing up with digital distributors. (laughs) Right. Because they don't want to handle that
0: part. Right, right. It's been interesting to watch the changes in the marketplace. Because now I feel like, with the the number of DSPs and, and just the the players in the marketplace and and the fractions of a penny, and the fact that you know for any artist, the most important thing that either they themselves or a label can do is to try to capture all those income streams it literally has gotten to the place where you need a team. So like you said, you know, if, if an artist did want to do a direct deal with Merlin, they'd still need a team of people who would be involved in all these, you know, what do you do with the raw data? How You know, DDEX fees, stuff like that. And, you know, same same for labels. I mean, labels need to make a decision. If, you know, do you have a department who can handle that or are you going to use a digital distributor and they have a department that can handle it? But someone's got to handle it. I mean, I think, you know, the watchword for 2019 and beyond and the last few years has just basically been complexity. Like the every day this business just gets more complex. And I think it has to do with the amount of data that we're trying to wrangle, that we're all trying to wrangle at all times.
3: I agree 100%. Some of the things that I'm seeing in the change in the distribution model is that the companies that are the most flexible and nimble are the ones that are succeeding. And and largely, those are the companies that never had access, right? So if independents generally always struggle for access, right? Who knew the main radio programmer, you know, at Kiss FM in LA? And aside, Portia does, but not all of us <laughs> do. <laughs> and, and so, access has always been a trouble. But there have been independents who succeeded even without access. And the better you are building a model that's built around data and building tools that help put your music forward around the data that you see, those are the companies that are kind of outpunching their weight class these days. Versus an independent sector, very many independent labels that we all grow up like you know idolizing who had a little bit of an advantage against their cohort, who knew the first programmers or editors at some of the streaming services, well, those companies are moving more and more data-driven decisions themselves and less on the old, come on in and pitch your music to us model. And it's those indies that are kind of, and labels, I would imagine, indie-end major, who are struggling. If you're built very much on a relationship-building game, and if, because I know you, you're gonna play my track, well, that's kind of going away. Right. And so those companies who built you know, data intelligence as a way of surfacing the, the right records for the right playlists, those are the ones that are winning, in my view.
0: Interesting. Well, Jim Mahoney, on that note, thanks so much for being with us today on The Future of What.
3: Thank you, Portia. Hear me out.
4: have all the time.
0: Was The Hex by Horse Feathers. You're listening to The Future of What? After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at MerchTable.com. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Kevin Bruner of CD Baby. Kevin, welcome back to The Future of What.
5: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here again.
0: Yay. So today's episode, we are talking about the new face of indie distribution. And at the end of last year, I got an email asking me, like, what do you think are going to be the big trends in 2019? And I immediately wrote back and was like, distribution for independence, because (laughs) I see some serious changes on the horizon. I'm sure you do, too. So I wanted to talk to you about what CD Baby is up to. I know, for example, that you guys have been really expanding in Europe.
5: Yes, we have.
0: So why don't you just hit me with, you know, your thoughts on all of this.
5: For a long time, the music business has really been focused around U.S. market or the U.K., and we're pretty developed as far as some of the things we've got going on, especially with distribution. But a lot of territories in the world are just really starting to open up to independent distribution and really build music marketplaces that are accessible to everyone. Places like Asia and Latin America and other parts of the world. Africa is another one that is really starting to see a lot of activity. You know, the interesting thing is like take uh, Latin America and specifically Brazil. We've been down there for a while now. It's been about seven years since we've had an office down there, but that whole market basically skipped the whole download era because the average person couldn't afford a personal computer and didn't need a personal computer, but they went right to bundled smartphones with bundled streaming services built in. And so that sort of really started the creator class understanding that they could get access to a broader market and specifically a worldwide market. So that's that's what's been interesting to see, like as we look at distribution around the world, some territories are in similar places as the u s and the u k. Some of them, there's a lot of talent like Latin America, but they just really hadn't thought about accessing the market directly themselves and still thinking they need a label. and the local market being very different than, you know, maybe the u s. market where a lot of them have had their eyes on for many years, like, I got to get to America, or, you know, like something like, Africa, like Nigeria, that's really just starting to understand that, you know, as an artist, they can get access to the world through distribution. So it's really cool. Lots of cool things happening.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And I guess, like you're saying, this is largely due to technology changes.
5: Yeah. Like I said, a lot of these markets, especially in developing countries, people don't have personal computers or even fast internet, but now most smartphones they can accomplish a lot of these things and make it happen. And also just the the proliferation of streaming in these markets as well, where music consumption is on the rise. Typically, before we go into a region and start adding offices, a couple things have to exist. One, there has to be digital music and the consumption of streaming to, to really drive music usage, but also there has to be a creator class that is making music independently. Some cultures, that's still not really the norm and even though there may be big streaming services and people consuming, it might not be culturally the norm to go and create music as an independent artist. So those two things really have to exist before we dive into a market. And it's been interesting to see some places have the streaming services developing, but you know culturally, the artists still aren't making music in a way or accessing the market or trying to put their music out. So. Those two things have to be in place for us to really dive in.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So that you guys have to sort of take it on a territory by territory basis, then, and just sort of figure out what's going on before you decide to get involved.
5: Yeah, and you know, CD Baby. You know, we've been around twenty-one years, and we've had artists from pretty much every country use our services. But as far as like, yeah, where are the the hotspots of a developing independent community? We look at a lot of numbers. You know, Mexico is one of our top markets now, and it's quickly developed, you know, 5 years it was way down the list, but then we saw some trends of like we've got a lot of artists coming from Mexico, let's put an office there, let's get someone on the ground and really help develop that market. And now I believe our fourth largest territory as far as artists distributing music through us. So we look at things like that. The UK has always been a powerhouse for us, so we have an office of 3 people there. Canada has always been big. We've got a rep in Toronto now. And we just hired somebody who is in Singapore, covering the Asian market and really helping us make a plan for how we tackle some of those regions more specifically. So we look at the data and just see where the artists are already starting to come from, and then start planning and putting people on the ground.
0: Is there a CD Baby in South Korea?
5: Not yet, but our guy Keith in Singapore, he goes to Korea
0: a lot. Uh Because it seems like that's definitely one of those sort of hotbed areas of...
5: It is. It is. Singapore is kind of like a nice jumping off point for Korea. And he's Chinese, so he's been in you know China some and sort of seen what's going on there. And he gets down to Australia quite a bit as well.
0: Do you guys have an Australian office or is he taking care of that territory too?
5: He's handling that now. We've done some tests and have had you know a marketing rep do some work with us, like a CD Baby Roadshow in Australia. I was there for the first time last... And we hit the three major cities and met with a lot of folks, both on the industry side and the artist side. And that's another market that's very interesting because you know they come from the developed world. They you know have personal computers and lots of you know very similar to what happens in the UK and America. But they also very much want to export themselves because. The Australian market is pretty small yep. as far as touring and and reaching the rest of the world. And they're so far away from everyone. So they have different challenges that make that market different.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I was over there last year as well. And I just fell in love with the whole, you know, Australian independent music scene, even though it, it is a bizarrely huge country with very small, you know, like yeah. the, the cities are really far apart. Yeah. It feels kind of different from the U.S. in that way. So, you know, I think you guys have always been uniquely placed because you're not technically a label, but you're more of a distributor, and then you're sort of a label. Like, in, you you do some label management features, but you really have sort of a direct relationship with artists, and you can get artists directly into the marketplace. You know, independent distribution, is, as a rule, tends to be, when I'm talking about it, I tend to talk about labels going into the marketplace, you know, bringing artists' stuff to the marketplace – But I feel like that is also changing. Have you noticed in your own music business world the impact of the change in indie distribution for labels? Yeah, I
5: think what we're seeing is that there's this layer of artists and labels and management companies that don't want to sign like a major deal or they're not to that point and are managing their career but they still need that extra support on the distribution front. We're doing a lot more in that area. We also have a, a brand called Dashgo that is really a label services distribution company. That That's really what they do a lot. We'll even provide with that brand. We'll even do some sizable advances as well. But a lot of those artists in that tier of artists and a lot of times we're interfacing with a management company like I said or it's a label they just need that extra support they don't have the staff to hire to you know handle all the the metadata management the pushing of the files the payment collection and and paying people and so we we provide that function for them and can get some editorial placements and look for other opportunities so there really is that kind of in between independent step that a lot of people are actually gravitating towards because they get to keep their rights they get to you know manage when and how they release music. And if the Times right and the deal presents themselves, they might move on to a bigger label situation. But a lot of times, this is exactly what they need.
0: Absolutely. What are you seeing? I'm just interested. This is totally like maybe a random question, but I'm interested. What have you guys been seeing in terms of physical? Because, you know, CD Baby obviously is extremely helpful with artists who want to Come into the digital marketplace. And I know that you guys were always able to make physical product if the artist desired it. But, like, what are you seeing in that regard? Are people still making CDs through CD Baby? Are they, is everybody into vinyl? Like, what's going on?
5: It's interesting. It's definitely the trends, I would say, are more genre specific than ever before. Mm. So, certain genres are very much still physical minded. I was just at the Folk Alliance conference and it was amazing to me to hear a lot of artists attending that conference still thinking physical first. A lot of them in the folk genre, they, they make their money being on the road and the people they're engaging with will still naturally know to buy a CD. In some genres, it's still, I would say, a must to have if you're trying to fully monetize yourself. You know, in the EDM market, I'd say you probably don't need a CD because the people that are engaging with that music probably aren't going to buy it. There's always exceptions to the rule, obviously, but, you know, it's something that is still worth testing with your fans. We've had a couple of big success stories with some YouTubers who never would have thought about releasing CDs to their fans. And uh, we've done it with multiple artists where we say, hey, let's offer them a CD. You can sign some of them and we think it'll do really well. And, you know, we've had one artist sell 50,000 copies doing that.
0: Physical copies?
5: Yeah, physical copies. (laughs) Wow. Being a a YouTuber and, and, you know, their audience is on YouTube and thinking, uh, we should probably distribute this music, you know, kind of a lot of these YouTubers and, and artists that are approaching the market differently, sometimes even just regular distribution is an afterthought. They're like, my audience is on YouTube. And then getting them to think beyond that, hey, you know, you should try some of these other monetization options. There's probably money sitting there for you because people want to engage with the music differently or they want that piece of memorabilia that you've signed. You know, the CD is no longer this needed thing to carry around music files. You know, it's more of a piece of memorabilia at this point. And some people will buy it. You know, for some people, they are still listening to a CD in their car. My band, our fans tend to skew late 30s, mid 40s and it's kind of a mixed bag of what they want. And so we still have to supply CDs otherwise we're just leaving money on the table and fans are asking us for it. But yeah, it's it's interesting. So last year our the overall CD sales at CD Baby, we saw you know natural decline that we expected. But the weird thing is this year they've been up so far. You know, there's some bigger projects that have released that have caused some of that, but it's just been interesting that it it hasn't been just this downward fast trajectory it kind of goes down and then kind of bounces a little and then goes down some more and bounces back up a little so it's something that's still worth testing and trying if your fans don't want them you know you you probably know that already but it's still something that's could be money on the table for you
0: yep the death of the cd is uh you know a rumor in the industry that's been going on now for 10 years and they just can't kill it (laughs) we can't kill it (laughs) it's not dead so you guys are in how many countries now? And how many do you think you're going to be expanding into?
5: Let me see. I think we're in five in Latin America. You know, we've got the person in Singapore covering most of Asia. We've got our UK office and Canada. We're looking at uh, places like France and Germany, some more European offices. We just sort of set up the guys and the gal. We've got three there, people in the UK. We kind of set them up as being a hub for Europe. So as that develops, we'll probably add some more. And that's kind of where we're at now, and i when we have Mexico, yeah, I don't know how many countries it is. It's like seven or eight, but they're covering pretty big territories as well, yeah, and we have our eyes set on a lot of Asian markets, you know it's it's a challenge you know right now, our website is available in English, Spanish, and Portuguese, and so that's a big commitment, so someone could sign up who's a you know native Portuguese speaker and go from start to finish, including calling us. And getting phone and email support all in Brazilian Portuguese. And that's that's a lot of work. Yeah. And so when you, oh God. you add every language you add, it's a lot of work. And you got a staff to it. And then when you start getting into some of the Asian languages where there's no longer does like even the design of your website work. Because the, the way the language sits in the page is totally different. It, it presents a lot of challenges.
0: No doubt. And I would imagine if you guys were going to get into Africa, because Africa is really... Continent with a lot of languages, (laughs) a lot of different language groups.
5: It is a lot of people in like North Africa. There's there's a lot of French in that region as well. So that's sort of what we're looking at. French as being a possible next language we tackle. We'll see. We're we have lots of discussions about it. We recently hired a VP of International. He started at the end of the summer and he's really helped us organize and start building out the infrastructure. And so that that's been really good. He was over at ESPN. Before that, and also did some work for Univision, so he's he's got some experience in the in the media world and uh, is helping us sort of tackle various territories. Awesome.
0: I love it. Well, Kevin Bruner from CD Baby, thank you so much for being with us today on the future of what:
5: Thanks for having me, Portia.
0: was Cash Machine by Two Ton Boa. Check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's Potty Mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Filthy Friends, Horse Feathers, Two Ton Boa, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Stars. See you next week.